Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We see where you would have us to go through the teaching of the scriptures. So, Lord, I pray we would find direction by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning for our lives, that we would have illumined in our lives where you are working by the light of your word. Lord, I pray that you would grant me, the preacher of the word, the ability to speak with clarity and uh, with convincing conviction. And I pray for all of us who are hearers and stand under the word of God, preacher and people included, this morning that you would give us good soil in our hearts to receive the implantation of the word and that we might bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. And we ask it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if, uh, if this conversation has ever happened. Um, uh, Mommy, would you please read me my favorite Christmas story? Oh, yes, dear child. What would you have me read? I love the one about Herod. That's what I want to hear. That just doesn't ever happen. It's a strange, strange passage to hear as we come to this second Sunday of Christmas tide. There's just not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of fa la 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 in the reading that we heard this morning. Instead, we get refugees escaping from a genocidal tyrant and the slaughter of innocent children. Now, most of you know by now that I am uh, I am the poster child for celebrating and feasting for the entire day, 12 days of the Nativity Feast. I am into this. I'm committed to it. It's, my, it's part of my discipleship that, for, that, that I have to have, you know, I want to get the full caloric impact of Christmas. And that ends on, on uh, the, the 6th of January. In fact, this Tuesday evening is the vigil of the, uh, the uh, Feast of the Epiphany. But this passage that uh, we just heard this morning seems to be a long way from that sense of joy and wonder and feasting and celebration that usually attends the amazing mystery of God putting on our flesh and coming to us in Jesus Christ. It just doesn't sound very Christmassy at all. And yet maybe, though, I think that maybe this kind of text is actually the reversed side of the Christmas coin. In other words, let me, let me put it this way. Yes, God comes to us in Jesus, but when he does, he comes into this world. He doesn't come into the Christmas card world. Now, let me tell you, I love the Christmas card world. I, in fact, I look forward every year. There's a sweet couple that always sends me an electronic Christmas card, and it is one of the things I look forward to every year. It's precious, and I love it. I really do. But, and, and that is part of Christmas. Those Christmas card things that we get, and they are beautiful. Uh, but it's like looking through a keyhole into a large room, and we only see one portion of the Christmas story through those Christmas cards. But really, the Christmas story is a lot bigger than just the joy and the wonder and the celebration part. The Christmas story, yes, it is about gift, and it is about fulfillment, but it's also about evil and powerful places. It is about injustice, and it is about refugees. So Jesus comes into this world, not some pretend world, a world in which refugees plead persecution, and powerful people have no problem with murdering the innocent in order to maintain their power and their privilege. You see, while Christmas is about God putting on our humanity and coming 
to us as the baby of Bethlehem, it's also about this. It's, yes, God comes to us at Christmas, but it's also about how God's rebellious human creation reacts to that wonderful event. It's not just about God coming. It's about how we reacted when he showed up. And when Emmanuel comes, the rulers of the world do not say this. They didn't say, yay, you're finally here. What a relief. Instead, there is violent resistance to what God is about to do through Jesus Christ. That's how the rulers of this world responded. And so I think that this is exactly an appropriate and relevant text in our world today. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the church. Christ is present in his people. We are literally the body of Christ. Paul didn't say you're like the body of Christ. He says you're the body of Christ, and every one of you a member of it. And Christ is the head of his body. So we are Christ present in the world. The kingdom of God is advancing as the gospel is preached, and healing and justice break into the world through the Holy Spirit's power. But brothers and sisters, just like under Herod, there is violent resistance and there is evil reaction to the presence of Christ in the world today. And so I think that this strange and even disturbing Christmas text is extremely appropriate for us here in the second Sunday of Christmas. And while there's not a a lot of fa-la-la-la-la in it, there is gospel in it. One of the first things that we notice when we come to this text is that Matthew gives us multiple, what I would call, or what actually scholars call, fulfillment passages. Multiple fulfillment passages in this text. There's, there are references to prophecies that are being fulfilled by Jesus in the events surrounding his birth and in this text that we just heard. So let me bring those out for you this morning. Verse 14 and 15, it says, uh, speaking of Joseph, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now here it is. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. And then again, it says again in verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And then at the very end of this, in fact, you could divide this passage into three sections. And in the end of the third section, at the return to Nazareth, it says this in verse 23, And he went, Joseph went, and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he, Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. It might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, I've got to tell you something about that particular passage right there. We don't know what in the world Matthew was talking about. Because there, we, there is not an Old Testament passage that says, and he will be called a Nazarene. And there's not an apocryphal passage that says that he will be called a Nazarene. Evidently, Matthew had a source that we know nothing about, or that just the entire scope of what we have heard and the return to Nazareth sort of as the capstone of that is a fulfillment of all that the prophets had foretold about the coming of the Messiah. But the point here is this, is that he keeps doing this. Listen. Pointing, our, he's taking, he's like, he takes our face, and you know, when you're a parent, sometimes you have to do this, make your children look at you, what you're saying. He takes our face, and he turns it towards the Old Testament scriptures. 
Matthew is taking our face under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and turning our face toward the Old Testament Scriptures. The constant references to prophecy turns our minds back to the Old Testament to remind us this, that God's people have been in exactly the same place before that Mary and Joseph and the child Jesus find themselves in in this passage. What is that place? Well, that place is, well, let's look at verse 16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, if I'm a person reading this passage and I'm familiar with the Old Testament and Matthew's making me think about the Old Testament, what am I going to think about? Well, brothers and sisters, this is exactly the same tactic that Pharaoh used with the people of Israel earlier, 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 much earlier in their history, 1400 years before this. It says in Exodus chapter 1, we would have thought about this, Exodus one twenty two. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So what is going on here in this passage? Well, here's what's going on. <clears throat> the same forces of spiritual wickedness that motivated Pharaoh to murder the sons of the Hebrews is the same spiritual force of wickedness behind Herod's slaughter of the innocents. Matthew is depicting Herod as a new Pharaoh. He's saying this is the same thing that's happened before. The same spiritual motivation is behind it. Pharaoh sought to protect his power and privilege and prestige and was willing to kill children to keep it. And in the same way, and in exactly the same way, Herod slaughters children to protect his kingdom, his privilege, and his power. He literally sets, Herod literally sets himself against God's kingdom. He is the, he is the embodiment of all the spiritual forces of wickedness at this moment who set themselves against God's kingdom because he sets out to kill the king. And that's the same thing that was motivating Pharaoh. Whenever and wherever you find, listen to me, wherever you find the slaughter of innocents, there you will find Pharaoh. Wherever you find the slaughter of innocent children, there you will find Herod. The same demonic force that was behind Pharaoh and Herod is still at large in the world today. And we have seen that spirit very clearly revealed in the last few months, with the slaughter of children openly done by ISIS. We've seen it. I've seen, the, the, I've seen things uh, that are not shown on the television, but we get through missionary reports and other things of children who have been beheaded and crucified, little children, toddlers. It's the same spirit. It's Herod. But brothers and sisters, we don't have to go to the Middle East and go to ISIS to see this spirit at work. We see it in the, cannibal, the literal cannibalistic practice of harvesting and selling and baby, buying baby parts from aborted children in this country. That is Herod. We are barbarians. We are the barbarians. This is a dark continent. But Matthew's constant reference 
to the Old Testament reminds us of this in the face of all of that terrible, that terrible scenario. As terrible as those events are, and in spite of the reality of the, monstrous, the monstrosity of human evil that was done under Herod, Matthew is showing us that all of this is, listen, it is accounted for in God's sovereign design. The multiple references of prophecy show that even when things seem most out of control, most awash in human evil, God's purposes for this world, for his world, are not overthrown. Now listen to me very carefully. It's, he's not saying that God is responsible for Herod's, Pharaoh's, Herod, Pharaoh, Herod. He's not saying that God is responsible for Herod's actions. Brothers and sisters, he's not, he is, the, the, it is clearly laid at Herod's feet. Herod alone is responsible. Our failings, but here's what we can take from this. Our failings, and yes, even our own wickedness, whether they are gross or petty wickednesses, though we alone are responsible for them, are taken into account in God's design. They have real negative consequences, but listen, they are not the end of the story. Human evil is real. It's, it's horrendous. It will come under the judgment of God. But it is not the end of the story. The fact that God does grant us genuine freedom on a, on a human creaturely level, we have the kind of freedom that human creatures are allowed, does not, even though we have that kind of freedom, it does not trump God's sovereignty. Even though there is genuine human freedom, even though there is freedom that makes us responsible for our actions, this does not trump the sovereignty of God. All of this is accounted for in God's plan, even things that are horrible. The fact that King Herod was thwarted in his desire to destroy the king of Israel also reveals something else wonderful here. We have good news in this as well. It reveals that God's mission in this world is not dependent upon the favorable disposition of those in authority. God's mission in this world is not dependent upon those who have human authority. It's not like, okay, look, um, I love... The first, I love our First Amendment freedoms. I love freedom of religion. I think it's wonderful. It's great. It's been very rare in the scope of human history. We've had a little 200-year bubble, and it may be going away. But here's the deal, brothers and sisters. If it does go away, God's plans and purposes will not be thwarted. He's not going to turn around and say, oh, my gosh, Gabriel, they just abolished the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. What will we do? They've whooped us. I had it all under control until then. Look, God was not defeated by Herod. God's purposes can't be defeated by the temperamental changes and fluctuations in the political establishment. This passage also reveals something very wonderful to us in that, in that it reveals that our God enters into human suffering. And some of us desperately need to hear this right now. Um, our God is not aloof. Our God does not stand apart from our suffering. He enters deeply into it. I've had uh, multiple conversations this past year for a lot of people. Was a tough, 2015 was a, was a difficult year for many people. There was a lot of death very close to many of us in 2015. There was a lot of hardship very close to us in 2015. 
And I've had folks who are struggling with their faith in Christ, you know, um, who, who say, I don't understand, uh, you know, why, why does God not do something about this? Well, why won't, he, why won't he change this situation? Brothers and sisters, let me tell you. First of all, um, when it comes to human evil, there's a couple things that we, we don't want to happen. Uh, we think we'd like for it to happen, but we don't. Here's what we don't want to happen. We want God to stop all the evil that happens to us. We want him to come in as the divine policeman and just clamp down on it right then. But when we're doing it, mind your own business, God. You know, leave me alone. Well, you can't have it both ways. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, the wonderful thing that I've been able to share with folks who have gone through this is that, yes, this is painful. Yes, this is truly painful. It's truly, it's true. Death is not our friend. But our God has entered into this world and accepted everything that you and I have to accept about living in this fallen world. The only thing that he hasn't done, he, he hasn't sinned, and yet he has, he has taken all our sin upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God has entered deeply into human suffering at every level. Did you know Jesus was always a poor man? Always. He literally, when he died, the only thing they had to divide up among his stuff was the clothes on his back. He knows what it's like to live like that. He knows what it's like. And that's what we hear in this passage uh, brilliantly explicated. Jesus and his family knows what it's, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph know what it's like, knew what it's like to be refugees. I think this is one of the reasons that God is breaking the hearts of his people, his church, regarding the plight of refugees, particularly our Christian brothers and sisters, but other refugees as well. What we see happening in the Middle East right now, it is a burden in my heart, and I feel utterly powerless, but my, I'm heartbroken. I want to do something about this, and I'm praying for God to give us the ability to do it. But I think the reason he puts that burden on our hearts is because Jesus knows what it's like for your family to have to leave everything familiar behind and with no preparation to flee for your life in the middle of the night. Our God has been a refugee. Our God, the one we worship, has been that person. And that's why God's people, how could we not welcome refugees? How could we possibly do that? He shares our sufferings still through his body, the church. Particularly, we need to think about our Christian brothers and sisters who are dying every day because of their witness for Christ. Jesus entered into a world where tyrants resorted to terror and murder to retain power, where the worst imaginable evils are perpetrated against children, where people have to flee from their homes and live as refugees because of threats against their lives, where on the surface it looks like God is totally out of control. In other words, Jesus has entered into a world that looks exactly like the world we live in. He came right to where most of us live. He has entered into your suffering. He knows what it's like to weep at the side of a grave of a friend that you love. He knows what it's like to be the one who dies. He has shared our every pain and sorrow. He does not stand back like some dispassionate scientist observing an experiment involving paramecium on a microscope slide. 
Now, if I were to come to this passage as a mocker and a scoffer, and I have heard things along this line as these passages have been read. I actually was reading, um, I was reading a particular commentary online, and, it's, and I was kind of like, you, you really haven't thought this through very well because this is where they got stuck. Well, that's all terrific about, you know, the angel coming to Joseph in a dream and telling Joseph to take Mary and his baby toddler out of, out of uh, Bethlehem before Pharaoh's troops come storming in and slaughter everybody. That's great for them. But what about those other innocent children? How many they were? Fifty? A dozen? We don't know. But how many? Of, uh, what about those other people and their toddlers? Huh? What kind of God does that? What kind of God takes one kid out and lets all those other kids get slaughtered? That's a moral monster. But you don't understand. Jesus is saved from death under this tyrant to be whipped and beaten and crucified and die under the hands of another tyrant. He does not escape the slaughter of innocents. He is the ultimate innocent. He is the innocent victim. He is the spotless lamb of God. This innocent also suffers, and he suffers more because he willingly goes to his death. And it is precisely because of what this innocent did that you and I now have life. In this act... His offering of his own innocent life. He takes the ugliness that sin and hell have spread throughout God's good creation and turns that ugliness into something holy and beautiful and life-giving. In other words, the very things that were meant for our evil, the very things that bring destruction to the old creation are God's means to inaugurate a new creation. In other words, he says something like this, I don't care how bad you have broken this, humanity. I, you can pour out all of the iniquity that you want to pour out. I am still such a good God. I'm still such a great God. I'm still such a sovereign God that I can take the things that you have done for evil and I can reverse that and bring life out of death. I can take the very symbol of degradation and humiliation and death in a cross and I can turn it into the greatest sign of victory that the human race has ever known. And brothers and sisters, right now to this day, the enemy knows he has been beaten by the cross. I, have, I just saw recently um, video footage. Everywhere ISIS goes, first thing they do, got to tear down those crosses. Take, those great, take their great big hammers and tear down the cross. Go ahead, give it your best shot. <laughs> it's already done. The victory is won. The cross stands forever as a symbol of God's victory, taking the very nadir of human ugliness and turning it into the pinnacle of His glory. His sovereign purpose cannot be thwarted. Uh, I, I was in preparation uh, for this sermon. I actually, uh, ABC 2020 a couple of weeks ago, I, I don't have broadcast TV, but nobody needs broadcast TV. So, <laughs> I went online, I went to the ABC uh, News website, and I found, that, I found the show about 149 Christian refugees who were rescued uh, from Erbil, Iraq. Uh, what had happened is um, 
Uh, maybe you know the story, but uh, I think the name of the town, and it's west of Erbil. Erbil is in the Kurdish region of Iraq, up north in Iraq. I think it's Karkaresh. Is that, is that right, John? Is it Karkaresh? You know the town I'm talking about? Okay. All right. Well, so you need to go study that up. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. But anyway, they, that was a large Christian settlement. It had been there for over a thousand years. Christians had been uh, the majority population in that community. Uh, ISIS came in. They were given the typical choices that you get under the Quran. They were allowed to either convert to Islam and say the Shahada. Uh, they were either able to stay there and pay the jizya and take the status of demi. In other words, you have to pay a tax to keep them from cutting your head off. It's called a, a poll tax. Uh, and, and you were allowed to live as a second-class second citizen, um, or if you refused to do that, you would be immediately executed. Much of that town fled in the middle of the night, just like Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And they fled a few miles to the east to Erbil. And there they came to the church of Elias, uh, St. Elias. And uh, there's a pastor there, and his name is, um, his name is Father Douglas Albazi. And I've got to tell you, as I, watched, as I watched him move among those people and work among those people and, and love those people, I, I was put to shame. I said, that's what a genuine pastor looks like. And I've never seen anything like it, the way he loved those people and cared for them. And so he brought that entire over, I think there were over 500 people that came to his church, and they got shipping containers, basically, you know, those big uh, uh, things they put on uh, ships that look like trailers, and they got those shipping containers, and they lined the, the courtyard of the church with these shipping containers, and they call them caravans, and that's where these families stayed, over 500 people in that, in that compound of that church right there. And, uh, and so they have lost everything. They've been brought there, and finally uh, 149 of these are able to escape and go to, uh, I think, Slovakia is where they ended up. But here's what Father Douglas Albazi said. Um, and this is how God takes the deepest ugliness now and by the power of the cross brings something beautiful out of it. Talking about how ISIS had destroyed their homes. He said, they took our houses and we became one family. These people lived in all these different... They all live together now in the compound of this church. They took our houses and so we became one family. And he said it with joy on his face and tears of joys in his eyes. They took our churches... And we became one church. Actually, he said, we took from them everything. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of the gospel. God's plans and designs are not thwarted by human evil. He only makes himself more glorious in this. And by entering into our human condition, God shows us this that he longs to be our merciful Savior rather than our condemning judge. He came as one of us to be our merciful Savior instead of our condemning judge. Do you see how far he has stooped to be your Savior? Do you see how low he has come to be your friend and not your judge? And now judgment is alone reserved for those who would reject this great mercy. And that is gospel. That is good news. Here is the good news that we heard this morning. While God is not the author of human evil, his plan accounts for it. Human evil cannot overcome God's good plans. 
God willingly enters our human suffering. He will not stand apart from us as his creatures. No matter what we're going through, he is going through it with us now and has been through it with us. Christ is spared as a child in order to offer his life freely to torture and execution as an adult adult, so that he could defeat the powers of sin and death and hell. And so, brothers and sisters, in this very strange and in ways very disturbing passage to hear on the second Sunday of Christmas, there is overflowing abundance of good tidings of great joy. Won't you receive them and believe them and rejoice in them on this Christmas Sunday? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.